Welcome to In Studio from Simply Timeless. I'm Jay Daniels. We're joined this week by pianist and vocalist Dina DeRose. Her most recent release is an album for High Note, Ode to the Road, which features special guests like Houston Person and Sheila Jordan. Our interview takes a journey down the road of Dina's personal and professional career. That story begins in upstate New York, near her home in Binghamton. Here's Dina DeRose. My father passed away about seven years ago, and my mom is uh, around still. And my brother is also living in upstate, not far from her. So many cousins. My father was one of ten, so there's quite a lot of uh, on that side. And my mom's side of the family was small, so just a few cousins on that side. But And we all keep, you know, sort of in touch on Facebook, more or less. Me living in Europe, and when I go home, it's hard to really see... All of them, I mainly see my immediate family when I go home. So, Was music often heard around your home growing up? Yeah. Yeah, my mom actually was a dance instructor uh, for Arthur Murray Dance. After kindergarten, I was taken over to the dance studio to wait for her to finish teaching so that we could go home. And back then it was, uh, you know, we're talking really, you know, 1970 or something. So there were still 45s around. <laughs> and they had a 45 machine a player, and they were playing the cha-chas and the rumbas and the bossa novas and the merengues and the, all the tango and everything, you know, and she was teaching it. And I was just sort of laying on two chairs, you know, at that age, five years old, whatever, watching them dance and listen to the music. So it was going in the ears, the real, that kind of more traditional dance music or whatever. But but also, I mean, growing up then, everything on television, much of it had, you know, some jazz in it, somehow. I didn't know it until I was later, later in life that I really reflected back. But it was, it was really everywhere. And, and of course, as I was growing up, we had station wagons with eight-track machines. And my parents loved Frank Sinatra and... Um, Peggy Lee and Tony Bennett and Len Campbell and uh, Willie Nelson and you know country sort of singers and and yeah jazz singers and pop more pop oriented of course they certainly didn't have any like Anita O'Day or Mark Murphy or you know something but the, at least I had that you know in the car uh, Johnny Mathis, stuff like that. So Nat King Cole, all those kinds of things. So I uh, did hear that. And, of course, playing uh, piano from a very early age and getting into a uh, popular organ of the 70s, which was a real thing. You know, it's you're really playing the popular music of the day on the organ. And also uh, sort of things like... Uh, Meleguena and Tico Tico and all the sort of theater organ music I got into. So music was just always around me. I was in fifth grade at public high school after being in Catholic school, and all of a sudden there's a band, and they wanted me to play the in the percussion section, a xylophone. So I did that, and then I played a little snare drum, a little bass drum, and timpani and different things, and got into percussion. So I just oh, I was always around music, like all the time. It seems as though music was always coursing through your veins, not only the melodies, but the rhythms. Did you realize this sort of connection at an early age, or is it something that you realize that 
you know, you had possibly at a later age? Yeah, I mean, my, my earliest piano lessons, I started around three and a half. And um, with Mrs. Miss Midjo, and she was already uh, probably close to 70 years, 75 years old, you know, very old, old woman, but very sweet. And she, she was one of, my mom probably t- tried five or six different piano teachers in town, and, and I, they all said I was too young. And Mrs. Midjo said, no, I will try. So, and I just started whipping through books. She was teaching me to read. And I was already playing by ear, though. Because I had come, you know, home from church and playing the melodies on a little toy chord organ, you know, and my mom heard the melodies, and that's why she thought of getting piano lessons for me. Because I could really, I could really just pick, or on TV, if you heard, you know, a commercial or whatever, and I'd remember the melody, I'd go over and I'd plunk it out. She'd go, hey, that's the commercial from, you know, McDonald's or something. (laughs) So, um... So uh, this woman took me on, and I and I remember going very quickly through the books, and she was very supportive, and you know, very motherly. I was very little; I was, you know, three and a half or four years old, and very shy. I was not; I didn't speak, <laughs> you know. So I, the the woman was very sweet, and but I do remember her telling my mom at some point, maybe when I was about going into kindergarten, that she couldn't really teach me anymore because I had gone through like three levels of books already and I was playing first lessons in Bach and that's about as far as she went herself with teaching. So my mom said, well, she's going to Catholic school and they have they have piano lessons there. So she'll continue over there. So I went there and of course you go in and, and um, it was a, just a total disaster. You know, the, the nuns didn't, the, the lesson was a 20-minute lesson, and I think they didn't even ask, I mean, I have a vague memory of it, but I remember it being really weird, because they never even asked me if I could play the piano. She just put my hands on the piano on these one, two, three, four, five on C, <clears throat> and F or C down here, an octave lower, and just said play C, D, E, F, G, you know, up and down, you know, and, and I'm like doing it and, and fine, you know, but she never really asked me. I could play, you know, one of the first lessons in Bach or something, you know, and show her what I could play. Never. So it was all this, it, it just got, and I had maybe two lessons. Cause, and I was so shy. See, I couldn't speak up, and it's a nun. You know, so I'm not going to say, um, Sister, I'm sorry, but you know, that in the 70s? No, you didn't do that. <laughs> you know, so I just went with it. And it went on for a couple lessons, and then I started complaining to my mom. And then it took her, you know, a couple more weeks or whatever to, to see the nun. And finally, it was that was it. I was finished with that. And then she tried to find me another teacher. And then... Um, it took a little while. Also, just needed maybe a break also, you know, maybe six months or something. Then she found me another teacher. And then I was with that teacher really until um, all the way through the time I was about like 17 or 18 years old. Actually, 18, eight, I was, yeah, 17, going on 18. It was about there. And she was helping me get an organ scholarship at Concordia, which I had... Uh, half a scholarship, and I would have gone there, but I went into a pop band instead. <laughs> Wedding one band. Those, one of those rebels, you know, going into popular music. So where did where did you end up going to college then, if you didn't go to Concordia? 
I went for a short time for piano, classical piano, at State University of New York, SUNY, Binghamton. Mm. Yeah. Because there were two great teachers there, Walter Ponce and Seymour Fink. And Seymour Fink was all about pedagogy and about technique, so it was a lot about this kind of motion while playing. And, and he also wanted to learn some jazz, so my hour lesson with him was split in half. He taught me classical half the time, and I taught him jazz half the time because I was already getting into jazz by then. So, yeah. And it's, I didn't last long in the school because of my hand problems. And I, I want to talk about that in a moment. And for clarification, um, you are well known for your talents as a vocalist these days in addition to your piano playing technique. But it wasn't always that way. You were primarily a pianist at this point in your life, when you're in college. And then when you turned 21, you received, for lack of better words, it could have been some rather debilitating news, especially considering your ambition, your aspirations of being a pianist. What did the doctors tell you after you were having some joint troubles? Yeah, I didn't know what it was, really. I went to the first doctor in my home area, who was a specialist in what was quite popular at that time in the, in the like 80, late 80s, 88, 89, which was called carpal tunnel syndrome. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know about it. But when I started asking around, I went to one doctor and then I went to a second doctor and it seemed like that's what things were being talked about, you know, carpal tunnel. So he assumed I had it. He gave me the test for it. Of course, the nerves were damaged a tiny bit or being being hurt and there was an effect in there so he operated on that and then I went back to playing after recovering from that maybe six weeks or something the most like five weeks I could probably get very up right back to sort of playing but I still had a lot of pain so then I went and uh, tried everything acupuncture and all, all the alternative things I tried everything. Name it, I tried it <laughs> to try to cure this pain. I didn't know what it was. So a new friend of mine who was taking guitar lessons from a teacher across the hall from where I was had a, a music studio, um, she said that she also has hand problems and she's a guitar player and she had a problem with holding the pick and the grip and, grip, and that the, the ligament and the thumb was lax and she found out through a doctor in New York and she had to go see him again. She said, you should come with me. So I went. I called them and I told them that I would be coming because we're all, you know, it's about a four hour drive down to New York from Binghamton back then. It's a, an ordeal. So you have to make a big trip. You have to make sure that they can see you. And I made the appointment and went down and, and um, they took an x-ray, I think even an MRI, I think, and or CAT scan, I think they called it then, or something, I don't know. Or maybe that's all the same. But <clears throat> they knew they could see that uh, there was some arthritis in a joint that on the uh, the pointer finger of the right hand that where it connects to the wrist bone. They thought that they could fuse that joint and I probably wouldn't lose any motion or anything in that finger and, and the problem would be solved. It took me some time to decide to do that because 
you know, it's an operation in New York City. I was still a Binghamtonian, you know, it's like I wasn't even a New Yorker yet, like tough. <laughs> you know, I was just like a little a country girl. And so it took all this, this entire process I just said in these five or ten minutes was really um, a good depending on which the first time even to get the carpal tunnel it took me six months to decide to actually do the operation because I, I just you know I didn't know I thought maybe it would just go away you know <laughs> without playing or you know because I really I stopped everything and that's sort of when I started to sing so through this whole thing the hand itself it was almost two years of really not playing year and a half to two years and then almost two and a half before it was really back to normal the first six months, I didn't do anything. Then, I just happened to be hanging out in a bar one night where uh, a trio was playing, and I sat in and sang because they edged, you know, pulled me up on stage pretty much to say, "Come on up and sing." I said, "I don't, I don't know any words," and they said, "We have a vocal reel book. Here's the words," and it's you know a small little bar in Binghamton, not not a you know little jazz very nice jazz hometown audience supportive and I sang one song I had already been of course before this hand thing getting into jazz so I already knew the usual songs autumn leaves love is here to stay these kind of songs, all of me and so I just sang those uh, one I think our love is here to stay or something and um, everybody clapped and they said sing another one and I'm like oh really and I really didn't think I was that good, but it, it was sort of fun. And then I sang another one, and everybody clapped, and I sat down, and I, I looked in the mirror behind the bar, and I said, okay, I think I'll get some voice lessons. And then it just started. And then I, start, and then I just started learning songs. I was totally into it, listening to singers, which I hadn't really done other than not for purposes of learning much about music. I was listening to Bill Evans and Red Garland and Ahmad Jamal and all those, you know, as a pianist, that's what I was totally into back then. So, and Chick Corea, of course, rest his soul, and uh, people like that. So, How do you think your skills as a pianist then help to inform your vocal talents and vice versa? I have to say, when I was really young, I, I used to sing in wedding bands. So it's not like I just started singing at 21, you know, 22 years old, 20, whatever it was, 20, almost, yeah. Um, I was singing in pop bands and stuff, but backup, mainly. Never really too many lead, you know, singer roles. Except when I was really young in the wedding bands. They wanted me to sing a few songs. And they were, of course, in, from the... Um, now we're talking 1978, 79, you know, we're young. We were all 15 years old. We were in a wedding band. 13, 14, and 15, 15, around that time frame. For about four or five years, we had this wedding band. I had a few cassette tapes of those gigs I had never listened to. And maybe it was 20 years later I saw them, you know, and I popped them on 15 or 20 years. And I was so out of tune. It was pathetic. Really, I knew it anyhow. I had in my mind that I had a hard time with singing in tune, right? Back then, I didn't have any breathing. I didn't know what singing was at all. And remember, when I was little, I was the shy one. And I was still shy when I started to sing uh, 
jazz even or just get vocal technique at 21 22 i was still more the shy type and i think that had a lot to do with not wanting to sing because i really did go through a period of when i was really getting into jazz piano i didn't want to sing people would ask and i just say no you know i mean can't you and, and and then i learned later that's that that's the nat king cole syndrome because that's in that movie, you know, and I didn't know that movie. But besides pitch, and I think also learning jazz because it's a little more like pitch, the detail of pitch is a much more, you know, colorful and intricate than, say, pop songs, you know. So to learn that language also helped my pitch, but to be playing it on the piano, and then, of course, I just had a tendency many times most of my life to sing while I was playing, you know, like, but quietly. I didn't know that I was, but that's sort of how the whole, like, doing it on recording came about because I was already living in New York and had a steady Monday night at Cleopatra's Needle and I was playing and they got a new PA system that, that night, that day, and they were trying it out. And they put it up and there was a new speaker, like, right here. And it was right near my ear, not far from my ear. And I remember the mic being <clears throat> there, and I was singing and playing tunes. But when I was soloing, the mic just sort of, I don't know, it came closer or my, you know, I could hear like my voice with the piano. And even someone in the audience said, hey, listen to that. That's how it started. Whoever that was, I don't know who it was. Just someone in the audience, and I and I even went, oh, and I went, and I pulled the mic more, and I went, you know, and I just put it, you know, with the piano, and I went, oh, okay, so that's a whole other instrument now we can add to the trio, you know, in a way, and so that's how that came about, but that's how I think it's influenced, you know, my singing, being a pianist and playing the way I play is affected musically what's coming out, this instrument, of course. But I do believe it's all what we have in our inner ear anyhow. And then, of course, through years of skill work and all that, it's on the muscles, whatever instrument you play. After I had stood and sang with a trio or whatever kind of musical situation, where I was only standing and singing for a good year and a half to two years, right after that, when I started to play, and my right hand could get enough strength in it to make lines. I noticed whether I was playing a melody or if I was taking a solo, that it was way more melodic. And the phrasing, say if I were playing the melody, I was really phrasing the melody when I played it because I was thinking of the words. And also having sung it, my breath got used to Da 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 dee da do da you know, and then taking another breath. But here it can sound choppy. But if you think of the phrase, then your whole everything changes. I mean my whole touch, the 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 rhythmic delivery of of from note to note changes because of the words. Also I'm thinking maybe sometimes the words, you know. And uh yeah, there's a lot of information on both both sides. Of course, with singing, the, the lyric and the story has always been probably the, the largest part of what I love the most because it teaches me what musically to do. 
the story, how to arrange, how to pick a tempo, how to pick a key even, how to reharm, how to put in a different time signature, how to, yeah, all kinds of things. So it's, but the story has a lot to do with that. When you think of lyrics and stories, and when you think of, you know, specific kinds of songs, what are the ones that really connect with you the most? Are, is it the ballads that really connect with you the most? Or would you say it's, you know, something more along the lines of a vocalese sort of composition? What are the things that, you know, you think really resonate with you as an artist and as a person the most? Well, I think the music I resonate most with has, um, there has been a singular web throughout most of my life, which is I love to swing and I love to, uh, I love a ballad. And if I think about, well, okay, Great American Songbook, I love it. You know, there's just so much material there that I connect with and resonate with. And when it comes to jazz standards of the classic 50s and 60s, even into the hard bop, into Wayne Shorter, and into the even more contemporary, I see that side of my sort of style grown more. I think, because of trying to get into, say, Kenny Wheeler songs with Norma Winstone, more, you know, or just even a great American songbook songs that are written still in that, you know, songs now people still write in that style. Alan Broadbent songs, you know, I mean, all these really, Roger Kellaway and all these wonderful off my newest CD, that's why I mentioned those two. I'm thinking, which ones? What did I do? You know, and and yeah, I mean, those I, I those are for me. They're still in the songbook kind of style, but they're so clever and musically um, high quality that, and I resonate with it. I mean, there are some Steve Swallow songs I resonate with, and then there's some that I don't. Same with Cole Porter. You know, I mean, it's just that's what I mean. It's but generally, I would say um, the Great American Songbook, some jazz standards. And of course, I've started to compose more. To me, when I compose, it really does, like the compositions envelop what I really hear. I think that's what's great about composition for anybody. Because it's really your, the truth. It's really what you hear and what you can hear and what you can... Uh, configure to put together to make it sound like you, you know, <laughs> as much as you can. So that's what I try to do with composition. You brought up a name, and uh, I was listening to one of his recordings with Mel Torme from the 1980s, pianist, composer, Alan Broadbent, uh, and I'm putting together a Bing Crosby program for March 20th, and there's a recording that Alan did with Mel on Moonlight Becomes You, and it features the trio along with full orchestra. And there's also there's actually a song that serves as the title track for this album that uh, Alan wrote with the lyrics of Mark Murphy. Uh, it's called Ode to the Road. And I guess you could say during this interview, we've been traveling down the road of your own life of personal and professional discovery. Why did you choose that particular song as the title for your new album? 
Getting a title is a process for me. I mean, I, 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 it usually comes very much toward the end. Um, I try to have one most of the time in the beginning so that I can think, okay, that's the theme. What songs can go with that theme, right? Sometimes I do that, of course, with the Shirley Horn tribute. That, that's a given. Um, uh, most of my other CDs are just a combination of a lot of great songs and live from Jazz Standard or live from Italy with, you know, uh, Marvin Stamm or different ones, you know. And then, of course, a few on Max Jazz where there is a, a title of the song, A Walk in the Park, you know. So these kinds of things, It's sometimes it's the title of the song that makes it. I didn't sort of want to go that route this time, but Ode to the Road just became such a hit on gigs that I just thought, you know, and, and believe me, this was, you know, May it was released in 2020. So it was finished in January. Actually, it was probably almost finished in December, before Christmas maybe, and before any of this pandemic came. Nobody really, well, it did come already then, I think, <laughs> in China in December or whatever, but... But we didn't know about nothing happened yet. So that wasn't the reason for it at all. But when it came down to the final decision, and I kept thinking of different titles of different songs there, and I really wanted to have these special guests on the on the bill um, because I was working with them a little bit at the moment. So Sheila, we had never really worked together on a gig. Um, we I've, I've sat in with her. She sat in with me, uh, you know, different gigs and different situations, different kinds of things. We've, we've been on stage together, but not on gigs and touring. But with Houston, I toured. And with Jeremy, I, when I'm in New York, I play. And he's on my uh, couple CDs ago with the Shirley Horn tribute. So he, he's just one of my favorite trumpet players, and I just love. And I thought he would fit a lot of the music that I was thinking of. So the Ode to the Road was more about being on the road, playing, like with Houston, I always played with them in Spain or in Italy or in California or so wherever it was, I was always on the road with him. And someone I've always wanted to ask to be on one of my CDs for, for years. We've been playing on and off together. So this was a treat to, that he could do it. And of course, Sheila, of course, she's someone that started the vocal program here in Graz. Uh, in the late 80s, and she uh, brought over different art guest artists every semester. She would be here one semester, then Mark Murphy for one semester, and then Andy Bay, or Jay Clayton, or Michelle Hendricks, or whoever it was, Tom Lellis, uh, different people. And in 2006, the, the school became a university, and they wanted one professor with a contract. So that's when I applied for the position and got it. And then, of course, I wanted to bring Sheila, you know, back here to celebrate her and the whole, you know, having a one of the first vocal programs in Europe. This was the first jazz school in Europe where I teach, in Graz. So it was really the first degree, I think. I could be wrong on that. There might be something in Berlin by then. But I think it is, though, the late 80s. And it really wasn't, it was a degree, I think, pretty much when it started. It was just a different kind of degree, more workshop style, 
different kind of organization back then. And then, of course, the university kicks in, and then it's like, chuck, 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 you know, everything's in order. Um, but, yeah, so I wanted to bring Sheila, and and we I've brought her about five or six times at least, and uh, always upstayed with her in New York and met with her for, you know, when I'm there for gigs and just kept in touch, and she's one that I always thought, why wouldn't it be fun to sing with her? And, and she is still just so kicking. At 90, what is she, two, three, four? I don't know. But it's she's getting up there, and she's still, you know, really, she was on, before this pandemic, she was on the road all the time. So it was a treat to have her here. I know how busy she was being a jazz master, you know, and all the NEA jazz master and all of that. So to have her on the CD was a real treat. Like I said, it wasn't so much the road about her, but that's how I was thinking about Ode to the Road. Let's also mention uh, your trio, you at the piano, obviously, along with uh, bassist Martin Wind and drummer Matt Wilson. And you've been working with them. How many years have the three of you been together? As a trio since about 2004, 16 years, going on 17, 17, something like that. Anyhow, with Matt, though, we go back a little further in New York. He used to play with me up at uh, Cleopatra's Needle and all kinds of other small little joints we were playing back then in the really in like 19 I think I met him around 1994 something like that probably about 10 years 10 9 or 10 years before Martin thinking about your own musical journey a journey of musical discovery as we call it at simply timeless and as you look back upon the road that we've traveled along today what do you see Someone had just mentioned it recently, and they said, well, Dina, I mean, you're, you are a brand. You, you, you have a sound. I mean, everybody knows what you do, you know? And so I thought about it. I had to think about it. I was like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> you know, what, what is it? So I, I think it was. Well, it's the fact that I do, of course, a lot of great American songbooks, songs. I am basically arranging them how I want to arrange them. I arrange a bit for, for the band, of course, different instrumentations, and I continue to do that. I continue to compose, and I try to include some original music from time to time. And on this particular CD, it's and the last one also, United, it really is starting to show that I'm doing more lyric writing to some jazz standards and things like that. So that kind of thing is also a development out of... Um, this thread, because I, yeah, it's the it's sort of the similar music, but I'm sort of just adding another layer of development, which for me would be lyric writing on jazz standards. Not not, not only knowing the jazz standard and being able to play it great and solo and all that stuff, but then write some lyrics to it, and 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 have it be have it work, you know. Um, that that so that would be. In retrospect, I can see that how it came out because I've always composed, even from, from the time really when I was very, very little, I think seven or eight years old. And I still, I actually have that that composition. I saved it. And it's called Don't Go. It was just like one of those pop hits, you know. But it was something that I really, I tried to write down and I can see that I didn't know how to write music. So 
<laughs> but it was interesting. So going from that, and then, of course, the stories, becoming a singer of this music first, and then getting the piano back, the whole retrospect. It just also, I think, um, compositionally, I, I grew along with the arranging that I was also doing. So I think my arranging has developed a little, you know, in a way through the years and comp compositionally it's sort of similar. So there is a, I can see that where I am right now and, and that's exactly where I am and I see th all the different influences and realize what influences at the moment I would like to add to my stew. Really, a lot of it is that 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 idea that whatever we listen to, it we're we're you know that's that's the, whatever we listen to that's what we really do put out if we listen to it enough, and if we listen to it with intention, for curious being curious about it, and, and then it brings that uh, all the good chemicals in your brain open to like accept things and remember things well all those chemicals, good chemicals, when you're curious. So if it's just like going to school, I have to learn this scale because they tell me I have to learn this scale, then you're not going to like, maybe you're not, it's not going to sink in. But if it's for a purpose, then it, then it works. I would have to say that your purpose in this life is definitely to share the gift of music with others. Yes, I, you, you got it right. That's, what, <laughs> that's why I'm, one reason why I'm a teacher and that's the other reason why I'm a performer. I mean, there are people that only record and put out CDs, and they don't tour much, and they don't gig much. But I, I do like performing this music with uh, great musicians. I've been fortunate through the years all over Europe and Japan and, and the States, and I have my little bass player drummer duos all over the place that are just really great musicians. I'm very thankful. And... and and that to me is, is sharing not only with my musicians on the stage, but with audiences that appreciate the music and want to hear, hear us play, period. It's not about, I mean, I'm not out there to uh, be the next like Alice Coltrane or something or, or John Coltrane or whomever, you know, like I'm not an innovator I, for the purpose of what I'm doing. If it ends up being that I did something to innovate something maybe that'll happen but maybe not and i'm not i don't care about that really and you know it's more about really right now being present being with your musicians enjoying the moment enjoying the music whether you're by yourself practicing enjoying the practicing enjoying the music especially these days with the covid we need something to drag us out of bed <laughs> we need something to take us away from the news and and people talking about the same stuff now for all not the same but because it does change a bit but it's a lot of the same stuff now and being aggravated with you know no no work so it's a little you know dip, the roller roller coaster of emotion you know year so teaching has been a savior because it really, we just sit and sometimes we just, some of the students, they had a bad week, you know. And a few, I have to say, could not get out of bed for some days. That's how depressed they get, first-year students, you know. So we sit and we go on Zoom and we watch videos. 
jazz videos together, like Anita O'Day and, you know, Sarah Vaughn and all these great, and we, not analyze, but we talk about them, you know, we sit and talk, and that was the best thing, and it really kept all our spirits up. So music is also a healing thing, and I do believe in some ways I do have some healing, um, prop, you know, like things that I can do for people when it comes to vibrations and resonance, you know, and all that with, with the music and, and sharing. Dina DeRose, this week's guest during In Studio from Simply Timeless. Be sure and check out her new album, Ode to the Road, from High Note Records. More information available at her website, dinaderose.com. Special thanks to Dina for joining us, and a special word of thanks to you for listening also. Until next time, I'm Jay Daniels. You've been listening to In Studio from Simply Timeless.